Welcome to the Government Huddle with Brian Chittister, a new podcast from Government Marketing University. My entire career has been dedicated to marketing in the government space. And in the beginning, I never cared about the why. I was completely focused on the how. It was all about the tactics, the analytics, the ROI, rinse and repeat. Then I decided I wanted to understand these programs and technologies the same way our customers do. It opened up a whole new world for me. And that is what this show is about, aligning the why with the how, taking a deep dive on current trends, making bold, educated predictions about the market, learning from expert guests, and discovering innovative concepts on how to respond to all of this. So join us as we talk about all things government marketers need to know about today, tomorrow, and beyond. Come on, let's huddle up. The reasons why people are successful in the military and the reasons why people fail are exactly the same as why you succeed in business and why you succeed as a person or why you fail. Now, look, I know you know being in an airplane is different. I get that. The environment might be a little bit different. Being in combat, certainly. So the setting changes. In all these things, the setting is different, but the reasons are exactly the same. Today's going to be a fun one, ladies and gentlemen. For those new to the show, thanks for joining. And for my subscribers, welcome back. This is the Government Huddle Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. That opening got me fired up. Today, we're talking about a lot of things, but the underpinning theme of the show is how do you win? How do you accomplish your objective, your mission, and do it better than those trying to beat you? Because ultimately, that's what it's all about in our line of work, winning. And right now, there's a lot of gray area in the face of challenges and honestly, a still uncertain set of risk. Private and public sector leaders are rightly concerned about how their organizations will be affected and what they have to do next. Now, I absolutely recognize that organizations are in different phases of dealing with their responses and resilience efforts, but I also know that no matter where you are on that journey, there's still a mission to achieve, a goal to go after, and a competition to win. And today's a really special episode. It's not often I get to sit down with somebody with Dave Burke's credentials. He's a retired Lieutenant Colonel in the Marine Corps was not only a student at Top Gun, but an instructor, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. He was the first non-test pilot to fly the F-35, commanded the Marine Fighter Attack Training Squadron 502. He's also the only Marine ever to have qualified to fly the F-22 Raptor and served as the F-22 Division Commander at Air Force's 422nd Test and Evaluation Squadron. Now Dave works with Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, and those names might sound familiar to those listening. They authored the New York Times bestselling book, Extreme Ownership, and then the follow-up, The Dichotomy of Leadership. Dave works with them as a business consultant for their company, Echelon Front, bringing the lessons he learned in the military and applying them to business. He recently co-authored a book with Jocko as well called The Code, The Evaluation, The Protocols, which we're going to dig into a little bit today. So let's just jump right in. Thanks for being on the show today, Dave. Yeah, man. It's good to be here. Thank you. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing with companies over at Echelon Front right now? Uh, yeah, absolutely. That could take a while. I'll try to keep it short. My background <laughs> was um, 23 years in the Marine Corps. I spent most of that as a fighter pilot. So I flew jets uh, most of my career, uh, but I happened to have a year out of the cockpit where I was what was called a Ford Air Controller, which basically just meant instead of flying an airplane, I had a team of Marines. I had a radio. And I communicated with the airplanes that I used to fly overhead and use those airplanes to support uh, the, the movement on the ground. So the, the Army and the Marines and the SEALs that were operating in where I was at the time in 2006 was a city called Ramadi, Iraq. 
And it just so happens at the time I was working closely with a, a SEAL team known as Task Unit Bruiser, led by a guy named Jocko Willink and one of his platoon commanders, Leif Babin. So I happen to just work very closely with them and, and supported their team on a, quite a bit of missions for the six months that we were there operating together. We grew pretty close. And then uh, 10 years later, they had started a company called Echelon Front that was really starting to grow. They joined or asked me to join them, uh, and I left the Marine Corps and joined Echelon Front and have been with them ever since. So I'm back working with Jocko and Leif uh, with leadership development at a really awesome consultancy called Echelon Front and working with businesses all across literally the world, teaching them the same leadership principles that uh, Leif and Jocko wrote about in their book, Extreme Ownership. So that's 26 years in a nutshell right there. <laughs> uh, you, you got that you got that practice down. Hey, before we jump into the business side of things, yeah, one of the things I love, you have a really interesting story about how you became a Marine Corps aviator. And it's interesting to me because it's, it's honestly not interesting at all. You just decided, you know what? I, I want to <laughs> fly planes. I just, this is what I want to do. I think you said you, you decided that when you were 16 and you just threw all your energy into that. Um, and it sounds yeah. easier said than done, but uh, tell us a little about that process. Yeah, well, it kind of started getting into my bloodstream when I was five or six. Uh, my family lived down in San Diego, and we moved up to a little town called El Toro, which is up in Orange County. So it was a pretty insignificant move, maybe an hour away. I was a little kid, didn't, know, didn't really know much about it. But when we moved up to El Toro, we moved underneath the flight path of the Marine base that used to be there called Marine Corps Air Station El Toro. So as a little kid... I was about a mile from the airfield, and I would see these jets flying overhead every single day. You know, this is back in the 70s. It was F-4 Phantoms and A-6 Intruders, old legacy planes that are long gone. Mm -hmm. But I just remember growing up just watching these things and being mesmerized. And so it really got in my blood early that it was something that looked really cool. I'd go to the air show every year, and it just sort of got into my system. And as I got a little older and started to truly contemplate what I wanted to do, by the time I was, you know, 14, I was pretty, pretty serious about it. And by the time I was 15 or 16, I had mapped out in my mind, you know, a very specific plan. I just told my mom I wanted to be a fighter pilot in the Marine Corps. I wanted to fly F-18s. Uh, she said, well, somebody's going to do it. Might as well be you. And I just uh, got really, really serious and really, really specific about what I wanted to do. And just started down that path of doing exactly what I had kind of dreamed about as a little kid and got real serious about as a teenager. And amazingly, it worked out uh, almost exactly how, how I planned it. So I did end up doing exactly what I dreamed about doing as a little kid, which is pretty cool. Yeah. So you've said everything that you do in your life, every decision you make is an OODA loop and being aware of structure and how to practice yeah. it can give you the advantage in whatever field you're in, whether you're in an office or the skies. Walk us through the OODA loop. Yeah. So the OODA loop, first and foremost, is that's just an acronym for a decision-making process that was codified by a guy named John Boyd years and years ago. Boyd was a pretty legendary fighter pilot in the Air Force, got his start in the 50s, uh, flew some airplanes during the Korean War era, and then went on to develop some, uh, some pretty interesting theories and some pretty interesting processes that helped us navigate when we had some substandard and inferior equipment. And what he came to codify or recognize was there was this decision-making process that was happening in a cycle, and he called the cycle the OODA loop. And it just stands for Observe, Orient, Decide, Act. So it's just an acronym for how he broke down the components of this cycle that really was happening 
all the time and never ending. And it wasn't just, you know, four steps in the process. It's always things kind of building on top of each other. And what he came to believe and, and explain, which influenced a whole bunch of things, everything from flying airplanes to maneuver warfare in the Marine Corps was the faster you could go through this process and make decisions, take the feedback from the decisions that you made and uh, make adjustments and then make more decisions. And the quicker you could do this, you could actually do it so quickly that your opponent, the people you were uh, competing against couldn't keep up. So even if their machines and their equipment was better than yours, if you could be three, four, five decisions ahead of them, they would be reacting to things you had done uh, already in the past, and you'd be outmaneuvering them through that decision-making process, which allows you uh, to outperform your competition. And look, man, this is an incredibly rudimentary way to describe a very complex thing. And for your listeners out there, you could you could Google OODA, and you'd get uh, you know infinite number of returns. You could connect that to any industry. You could type in UDA and healthcare. You could type in UDA and anything, and you're going to get an awful lot of work out there. So just want you folks to all realize that this is a, a very rudimentary explanation of that process, and there can be a lot of complexity to it. But the, pro, uh, the, the bottom line with the OODA loop is that it's happening all the time. You know, I used to, when I explained it, I would talk about crossing the street. And, you know, if you and I are going to go across the street, it's not hard for you and I to do it. You know, we look out, we look left, we look right, we get a sense of the thing and, and we and we go across the street and we think it's very easy. And actually for you and me, it is easy, but it's only easy because we've done it a bunch. And anybody that's ever tried to teach their kid, their five-year-old, like my son, how to walk across the street actually turns out to be pretty complex. Uh, and I know that because most of the decisions he makes when crossing the street are wrong decisions. And I have to explain <laughs> to him. And so what you do is you walk out to the street corner and you observe, you look around. Now, you and I may look uh, at a truck that may be 100 yards away, and we can very quickly determine whether that truck is a threat to us. You know, is it going fast or is it slow? Is it stopped? Um, you know, is there a streetlight between you and me where that streetlight is? So we take in all this information that we're observing uh, and we can process that. But a little kid looks up and he can't really figure that out. I see my son stop sometimes to cross the street when there's other vehicles that are stopped waving him across. But he can't really process that. He can't orient that information that he's observing and figure out, you know, what, what's relative, relevant to him. And you and I both know that sometimes a really fast car that's far away is more dangerous to you than a car that's closer, but moving very slowly. But you have the ability to, to observe and orient to that because you've done it a bunch of times and you can make really good decisions. And then even sometimes now as an adult, they probably sometimes go to cross the street, you make the decision, you take a step and you go, oh, you know what? That was probably a bad decision. I need to either get back on the curb or sometimes you catch yourself halfway across the street. You know what you start to do? You start to trot a little bit, or maybe you start to run and go, wow, that was a a really poor assessment on my part, but I, I took that input, uh, that feedback, and I processed that, and I've adjusted my my plan to get across the street. I'm gonna I'm gonna trot a little bit, or maybe get into a full blown sprint if I've done it wrong. It affects yeah. kind of your 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 further um, or your next decision. So the next That's time right. you cross the street, you're That's bringing right. in orientation from some from previous times. That's right. You you the more experience you have with it, the easier it is. And you've probably heard you know professional athletes they talk about you know playing. Uh, high school ball and then they go to college and they keep on describing things as getting faster and they get to the mm -hmm. pros they say boy the nfl is they describe it as fast well if you talk to some of those professional athletes like the the tom brady's of the world or the peyton mannings of the world when they talk about uh you know being a quarterback after that they, they say things are slow down and all that really is is look the speed of the game actually hasn't changed that much it's their ability to process what's going on and the more experience you have the better you are at it the easier it is to make decisions 
and get inside somebody else's loop who can't keep up because the world is just going so much faster uh, for them because they don't have the experience or don't understand the process by which they're going through. And again, that's how inferior opponents, maybe airplanes that aren't quite as good on paper uh, or companies that aren't quite as big or have the marketing budget or have the uh, branding can actually outperform their bigger and stronger peers because they do things that their peers uh, counterparts can't react to. And I that's think, the OODA loop. And that's why the OODA loop applies everywhere, man, from crossing the street to running a business, uh, flying fighters and everything in between. I think the sports analogy is great because honestly, the the part of that statement really that resonates with me is is if you do it better than your opponent, you win. And that's right. you, ha you have those daily routines and processes. But I feel like in business, we we sometimes forget the point of everything is to win. We're here competing. I, I mean, I work to compete for contracts with the government all over the world. And if I don't procure that business, then I lost. Uh, <laughs> is, that something, is, is that something you're seeing in the corporate level where sometimes they just lose that focus of what, that, yeah. what they're supposed to be doing? Well, Brian, first, I'm, I'm thrilled that you said that, man. I'm stoked that you used that phrase because that's what this was about. This guy, Boyd, I was telling you about, this guy was obsessed with winning. He was kind of your typical type A fighter pilot. Uh, most of us really want to win. And this was a methodology to allow us to win when on paper, maybe we shouldn't be able to. And you kind of matched up just the objective metrics of the two different airplanes or the different companies. And so the OODA loop is all about winning. It's all about being successful. And the people that want to be successful have to understand ways to do it. Uh, that's how small companies beat big companies. And what we see when we work with organizations out there, especially the ones that we work with at Echelon Front, uh, that that obsession with being successful, that obsession with, with winning is actually very strong. And we see that uh, in most places. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be ruthless or evil about it, but they want to be sure. successful. They want to grow their companies. They want to uh, pay their people more. They want to expand their reach. They want to improve their products and they want to get better. They want to win. And I really like the, the connection between the OODA loop and winning because that for me is exactly what it's about when I teach this lecture at our muster, our annual leadership conference. That's one of the first things I talk about is this idea of uh, OODA loop being about competition. And in a competition, you typically get a winner and a loser. And it's usually better to be a winner. And that's yeah. what I think when we work with most people want. A couple of years ago, I had the pleasure of uh, hearing John Foley speak. And you might know John. He's a former Blue Angels pilot. And he, he was walking, he was speaking to a conference and he was walking everybody through, um, kind of his process and how he got to where he, where he was and, and what he learned. And the thing that resonated with me honestly was the debrief and, and my six-year-old, my six-year-old will joke around and we'll watch. In fact, when they were having those flyovers with the blue angels and thunderbirds all over the country, we were, we were on YouTube watching videos of, of blue angels and, and the part that was always interesting to me is, well, I want to sit and I want to listen to the debrief. I want to hear how they're picking pieces apart and how they're they're looking to get better, even though they even though they're in the top less than one percent of their profession, it's always about getting better. And they're focusing inward and really taking responsibility for that. So as a pilot, you've been in those debrief sessions, um, especially, I mean, I, I know you were at Top Gun. Um, Walk us through what those debriefs are like, and I, I would imagine that is feedback into that orientation process for the future, right? Yeah, that, that's the feedback loop. That debrief is something we take real seriously all across av uh, aviation. And I was in the Marine Corps flying fighters, and I did end up uh, both as a student and as an instructor at Top Gun, so I got to see that debrief process on both sides of it both as a student going through the program. And then when I came back teaching for three years, 
the debrief was centerpiece of virtually everything we did. And uh, as a naval aviator, as a Marine who flew on carriers as well and have a bunch of carrier landings, like most of those Blue Angel pilots have as well, they know that every single landing is graded. Uh, no matter if you've done one or or a hundred or even a thousand, there's some guys have up to a thousand carrier landings. Every single one of those carrier landings is graded. And the common theme amongst every landing you've ever had on a ship and the most common theme amongst every debrief you've had in a flight is that none of them have ever been perfect. There's been a flaw or an error or a difference or a failure or something wrong that could be improved on every single landing and every single flight that you've had. And so the beauty of the debrief is that it's not to say that we don't celebrate the things we do well. We we can acknowledge our, our success on the mission and we can congratulate each other on doing good work, but we don't spend a lot of our time talking about the things we did right. We spend almost all of our time talking about the things we did wrong, the things that we could do to get better. Even if you're sitting up there in that top 1% strata where you kind of represent one of the best in your organization or the best companies or, or, or one of the best salesperson or the best team leads. There are still ways to get better. Uh, there has never been in a perfect event. I wrote an article on this, you know, a couple of years back, this idea of this pursuit of perfection uh, and how perfection doesn't exist. Flawless execution doesn't exist. Perfect execution isn't a thing. And at Top Gun, the way I talked about perfection wasn't employing per perfectly. Perfection was uncovering all of our mistakes. A perfect debrief is the debrief where we talked about all of our flaws and didn't let any mistake go by. And so in my mind, you know, this idea of redefining what perfection is, is about getting better, even if you're at the absolute top of your game, because nothing you've ever done is perfect. And I think every Blue Angel would tell you that. And certainly every fighter pilot I ever flew with would, would admit that if you can keep your ego in check, there's always room to get better. And that's what the debrief's about. If you're, so if you're working with companies then and you're trying to communicate that to leadership, how do you explain that to them? And I say that because it's something that I know I've struggled with as, uh, as being in leadership positions and, and running teams is my brain will focus on the things that went wrong. And it's not it, it's not in a matter to blame anybody. It's just that's yeah. that's what I want to do. I wanted to, I, I already know I did something right, or I already know my team did something right. So I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about the things that we need to get better. But in the corporate world, I, I, I think that doesn't necessarily resonate because you need certain people to understand, yes, I I see that you did that right, but let's come over here and let's let's focus on this. How do you strike that balance? Well, I think it is a balance. Uh, my experience is that what worked and what resonated in the military is the exact same things that work and resonate in the private sector and in the corporate world. So my experience tells me that uh, it's exactly the same. Military leadership, military experience. Yeah, the setting might be a little bit different, but the terms of in terms of how you interact with your people is exactly the same. Leadership is leadership, man, and people are people. You know, the beautiful, beautiful thing about military experience is that you're just talking about people. You're not talking about a bunch of Terminator robots that have some sort of natural capability of disposition mm -hmm. that doesn't exist in the private sector. We're all just normal people doing a job. And, you know, that job may have some little fanfare around it. But the, the reality is, is that the way I train and lead in the military is the exact same way as I train and lead in the private sector. And, you know, you talked about this balance is I want my team to embrace the idea that talking about the things we did wrong is is good for us. And the best way to do that is, to, I think, for sure, think about two things. One is, you know, people have egos. And it's not really smart for me to come at you and go, hey, Brian, you work for me and you screwed all these things up and I attack your ego and tell you everything you did wrong and just tell you to, hey, step up and, and, and you know, get better, improve your game. I have to recognize that you have an ego and I have to recognize that I need to teach you 
and and find a way to maneuver with you to get you to figure out that getting better is actually in your best interest. And ironically, the best way to strike that balance is certainly in the beginning, before I have a really strong relationship with you, with someone that you're new to my team or someone I'm just getting to know, I'm not going to attack you at all. What I'm going to do is I'm going to spend all my time talking about me and all the mistakes that I made and all the mm-hmm. things that I could have done differently. And I'm going to show this person, hey, man, there's nothing wrong with revealing your flaws and your errors and your failures. At this company, this is how we do it. And I'm going to do that by letting people know, hey, in this debrief, I'm going to tell you everything I did wrong, even things you didn't know about. And I'm going to create an environment around me by which discussing our mistakes, discussing our failures, and talking about the things we didn't do right is just how it works. And the reason we're going to do that is to make us better and we're going to improve next time or we're going to win even more. We're going to outperform our peers, our competition, and it's going to help us. And over time, what people start to do is they develop trust with each other, develop strong relationships. And then that allows me later on to go, hey, Brian, I noticed over here, maybe this could have been a little bit better. I, caught, I saw a couple of things here. Let's talk about those things. Uh, but I'm not going to come out the gate you know, early on setting the tone where my job is to attack the mistakes that you made. I've got plenty of my own to figure out, and that sets a really nice environment by which people say, that's just what Dave does as a leader. That's what we do. And more often than not, they do the exact same thing. And ultimately, then you get a culture by people talking about their mistakes. That's what teams like the Blue Angels and Top Gun do. And that doesn't mean you have to be in the military to do it. We see it all over the place in the private sector. The companies that do it are the companies that are successful. Yeah, I think that that goes to – there's a Silicon Valley ethic that I think is slowly um, – proliferating across the world around the failing fast. And I think that's that's the kind of culture they're trying to create too, right? It's not your fault, but they want to dig into it. They want to understand what won't work so they can remediate and then move forward. Do you see the companies that are doing that um, are more innovative uh, and, and kind of stay ahead of their competition? Yeah, the companies that are willing to accept their own mistakes are certainly ones that are successful. And you brought up two themes I think are really important and center, uh, central to the things that we teach at Echelon Front. One is this idea of innovate and adapt. And that's the idea that the world around us is changing, our competition is changing, which means we have to change. And the success we've had in the up until now doesn't automatically guarantee a success in the future. And that's very closely connected to the concept of ego that we've already touched on is that our ego is the thing that prevents us from admitting that we need to change, that we need to adapt or innovate. And so we talk all the time about the perils of ego, the, the need for humility, and how the failure to keep your ego in check is going to prevent you from innovating, adapting. And those are the companies, the ones that don't do that, those are the companies that fail, no matter how big they are, no matter what their market share, the revenue, or anything else is, you could be the biggest company in the world. And if you don't continue to innovate and adapt, and if you don't maintain that humility, you're going to fail. But there's another component to that too that we we talk about and it's really the centerpiece of of what we teach at Echelon Front is this idea of extreme ownership. And really to put it bluntly, if you are failing, if there's something going on in your world that's preventing you from being successful, it actually is your fault. Uh, whether that's an internal factor, an external factor, whether it's the performance of your team, whether it's a subcontractor not delivering on time, whether uh, it's the marketplace. There's a whole bunch of external factors out there that we can point the finger at, but all those are your fault. And sometimes that language can, can come across a little harsh and sometimes a, an easier way to explain it that's a little uh, people are more willing to, to listen to is those are still your problems to solve. So I think this idea of failing fast is great. But the most important thing you can recognize is that if you're on a team or doing something and it's failing, it's not working, and you're going to recognize that, the first thing I'm going to do with that is take ownership of that. 
and say, well, it wasn't the marketplace or the weather that drove me to be a failure. It was these things that I didn't do to adapt to the marketplace or the weather or any other number of things that might impact me, whether it's inside my team or outside my team. And the willingness to take ownership of everything, everything is actually what allows you to get better. Because then you're not dismissive of external factors and say, hey, there's nothing we could have done there. We couldn't do anything about that. That's not our fault. You don't learn anything by doing that. Uh, the best thing you can do is look at the world you're in, take ownership of all of it, and that's what allows you to get better. That keeps you humble. That lets you innovate and adapt, and it lets you take responsibility for a lot more than a lot of your competition might be willing to take ownership of, and that's what makes you better, and that's what lets you win. So I would say it absolutely is your fault, and that mindset is critical to be successful. So you're, you're working with a lot of companies in your role, and I know you talk to a lot of people, even at your uh, your event, Muster. What are some of the more common issues and challenges you're seeing uh, in the corporate world right now? <laughs> well, the most common issue we see is the same issue we saw in the military. It's dealing with people. That's the most common issue because people can be difficult and uh, we can be difficult because of our egos and working with people and building relationships with people and managing your people is always the biggest problem. And that's really what leadership is about is how well do you communicate? How well do you build relationships with your team? How well do you manage the frictions going on in the world around you? And we always say that leadership is a human nature endeavor. This is about people and leadership is hard because everybody is different. So the biggest challenge that people face, like I said, is the exact same challenges we all face in the military is dealing with people. And that's what leadership is all about. And so the principles that we teach the concepts and the mindsets that we talk about at Echelon Front are all about doing a better job, uh, being a better leader, and imp implementing in ways that make you more effective for the people around you so they can go do their jobs better. So you recently wrote a book with Jocko and Sarah Armstrong, The Code, The Evaluation, The Protocols, where you guys discuss steps to take to become a, and quote, eminently qualified human, which I love. And yeah. what I love about this book is it's, it's completely comprehensive of somebody's life. It's not just about business, but you focus on everything from health to what you just talked about relationships and everything yeah. in between. Talk to me about the process you went through pulling this together, because I know it, it came from a Marine Corps doctrine, right? That's right. That's exactly right. So first, let's just, uh, just to be clear, I was lucky enough to be a small part of helping Jocko write this book. Uh, don't <laughs> give me too much credit. This is something that really came out of you know things he, he had been working on. And then he did a podcast and asked me to connect with him after the podcast because the podcast that he did that sort of sparked this idea that got so much feedback from his listeners was the Marine Corps Performance Evaluation System. So how does the Marine Corps evaluate it's Marines, and we have this ranking system and this grading structure, and something that really caught Jocko's eye and something he and I talked about quite a bit at length was this idea that the Marine Corps defined you know, the very top of the, the very top of the tree of, of the different, you know, strata that you could put a Marine in the person, the very, very, very top, we called it a Christmas tree. Cause it was kind of a triangular shape that had the, you know, the very point at the top. We described it as the eminently qualified Marine. And we dug into the manual to see what attributes that eminently qualified Marine possessed. When you read it, it was just, uh, it was superhuman. You know, it was just a series of attributes and behaviors that vastly exceeded what any of us thought we certainly had. And what we talked about was this idea of, hey, the Marine Corps does a really good job of defining the attributes that you need to be successful and then actually grading and ranking them. You could be, you know, anything from a one to a five. One is you're just barely meeting the standard. You could even be a zero, which means you're unqualified. 
and then you could be a five at the very top of that chart, which you'd be eminently qualified. So Marine Corps does a really good job of defining how people should behave, behave and interact and how to rank someone on that using a scoring system. And that didn't really exist for life. So we sit out on this idea of trying to create this performance evaluation system that came from the Marine Corps and creating a version of it just for regular human beings, not military uh, you know, evaluation, but just life evaluation that mm-hmm. anybody could use. And we started with health and fitness, and then we started about family and relationships and realized you need to be able to defend yourself, and you needed to prepare your family for, for hazards, and you needed to think about what you ate. And all of a sudden, it became this very comprehensive thing that evolved into this manual, which is really kind of like a guidebook, almost like a, a field guide mm-hmm. uh, of how to consider the things you need to do every single day, and then a really harsh grading system so you didn't give yourself too much credit for doing things really well. And even if you did one thing really well, that meant more than likely the other five or six things you're grading yourself on, you weren't doing well. So we are on this long path that never really ends to trying to get better all the time, knowing we'll never really achieve the status of being eminently qualified. It's just a goal that we're moving towards. Yeah, and I I blame you and Jocko because I, <laughs> I I run all the time and and I'll go out on a run and I'll get back and I'm like man that was only like a one and a half or a two, and but but you're right I think it gives you a it gives you a path and I know that's what you guys call it you, it gives you a path that you can focus on and going back to what you said earlier perfection it it might be unattainable right so you can't blame yourself for for getting a one or a two you you can take ownership of it and say I just need to do better and you can focus right. on getting better. Um, but some of the things that that come out of it, I just want to I want to list some of them. And I recommend for all my listeners to to check this book out. It's fantastic. But I will not waste time. Time is precious. Uh, when you when you look at that, I, I remember listening to the podcast, and uh, I think it was Jocko that was saying when he broke down the the amount of time that he wasted, and and you aggregate that, and it was just a couple years worth of time. It almost makes you sick to your stomach. Yeah. Um... The, 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 the code and, and there's a lot there. So that code is that first section of the book. It's kind of a single sheet of all the things that, that, that we should strive to do. And they are so straightforward. They're, they're almost like elementary, this idea of, I will not waste time. But as you dig into it, I think you did a good job sort of making uh, your listener realize that if you pay attention to that, boy, that's something we do all the time. The most valuable, the most precious, uh, the most fleeting resource that we have in the world in our entire lives is time. And we waste it all the time. And, you know, there, there's there's a couple things that you said in that I thought were really cool too, is, is you say you go out for a run and it is the best run you've ever had. And you come back and you deem that was the perfect run. I have achieved mastery in my profession or in my, uh, you know, uh, my hobby or my skill. This is, uh, now goes down in history as the greatest thing that anybody's ever done in this, in this profession. Where does that leave you? It, I mean, for me, yeah, that, this, that might, that might be a four. Yeah. It, it means that you did something that you are now capable of doing. So your entire baseline exactly. is set. And so, yeah. in, in fact, it wasn't perfect. It was just a new baseline for you. So we, we kind of make it very clear that at the beginning here, it could Fluid. be something, hey, man, if you've never gone, if you've never run a day in your life, you're going to go out, you might walk a half a mile. And that might put you at a level five exertion. That might be the one of the most difficult things you've ever done. Mm-hmm. Well, if you do that every day for six months, all of a sudden that half mile walk becomes very, very, very easy. And that five is no longer a five. It might actually be a one now. And so because you're on this path, you're never going to run yourself down the road where like, I am just exerting myself to my limit every single time, you know, and I'm a five all the time. And even if you could, 
every other category you're ranking yourself in is going to suffer. So there's this idea that even as you improve, the requirements continue to go up. Uh, and the code is an evolution, uh, and the, the protocols and the, and, and the evaluation, that's also an, an evolution as well, that even those numbers change on what mass, mass uh, you know, maximum exertion is for you. Once you achieve that, that actually is no longer your maximum exertion because you've done it. You can actually do more the next time. So another, another piece of this book that I really liked um, was there's also a protocol for I don't know what to do. And I think that's, that's perfect for the situation that we're in, because honestly, I, there's nobody that is living right now that's gone through a pandemic and been in a situation like we're in. Um, so they're, they're sitting there saying, you know what, I don't know what to do. Um, so the book has a piece for that. Explain what that protocol is when people just kind of have no, seemingly no path forward. They, they're trying to figure that out. Yeah. So you're talking about this idea of, of, um, inside the protocols when I don't know what to do. So, so the protocols are, are all these different s scenarios. Um, and it's, you know, I, uh, in my, re my relationship has ended, um, you know, I've got problems at work, you know, whatever th those things were, there is a, kind of a protocol, which is a little bit of a series of things that you're supposed to do is, you know, like if, if I'm having financial problems, you know, we kind of run through a list of, hey, the first thing you want to do is take ownership of that. Um, when you're talking about, I, I don't know what to do, meaning I don't even know where to begin. That's, you know, that's a problem that kind of is a bit of a, of a, of a catch all that covers everything that, that we're talking about, you know, and it doesn't have to be a specific situation. It could just be that you're feeling overwhelmed. And what we talk about, you know, not just in a book, but when we talk about just in general is this idea of, of detachment is when you don't know what to do, you have to detach from what's going on, you know, from, from the world yeah. that, uh, that you're, that you're living in here. And this is, you know, dealing with the unknown, um, you know, something bad happened. I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what my first step in the process is. If you feel yourself not knowing what to do, it's more than likely because you're being, you're emotional. It's an overwhelming situation, a difficult situation, and you're frozen. And what you have to do from that is you have to detach from that emotion. You know, that's one of the principles we talk about is this idea of prioritize and execute. We have the phrase, relax, look around, make a call. And sometimes what you need to do is just stop, altogether stop. Yeah. You need to take a deep breath and exhale. You need to take a step back and you need to look around and see what you see. Assess everything you can figure out. And the more detached from emotion you, be, you, can be, you become, the easier it is to start figuring out what you can do. And it may just be figure out one thing. And if I figure out one thing, then I'm going to start working on that one thing. And that one thing might help me detach a little bit more. And I identify two or three other things. And over time, you can start working a plan. You can start taking steps in the right direction. This is another OODA loop scenario because you can assess what's happening. You get a little bit of feedback and you kind of move from there. But if you don't know what to do, if you're in a situation, you don't even know where to start, you're being too emotional with that and you need to relax. And that can be really, really hard to do because we're fighting against human nature, but it is one of the most critical things that we have to be able to do. And it's certainly applicable now with, with this being one of the, I think, most emotional times that any of us have ever lived through. This is a time to try to detach from that emotion. So the, the book really covers not just professional growth, but personal growth as well. And so, so Dave, Dave Burke, you've, you've <laughs> done a lot of great things, impressive things, but honestly, fun things throughout your career. You achieved a lot. Uh, and I'm sure that's come from setting goals and you follow the path, but from personal growth right now, where you are, what do those goals look like to you? 
Yeah, I mean, the personal growth piece of it for me, and when people make the connection, that's what I think where the real power is. The personal growth is is really what this is about. You know, we we are we are professional leadership consultancy, and we work with business. But the principles that we teach and the things that that are in that book, Extreme Ownership, and all the books that Jocko has written, the things I've gotten to be a part of, it's not just about being good at business. It's about being a good human being. And they apply absolutely everywhere. And the real magic in this idea of ownership, this real magic in this idea of the principles that we teach to be good in your professional life are more powerful when you can make the connection to your personal life. So personal growth for me, you know, they're very straightforward. They're almost obvious, but being a better husband and being a better dad. And the way I do that is anything that's wrong in my world, anything that isn't the way that I want it to be, anything that's not as good as it should be for my family, I take ownership of that. It's the exact same principle that I apply in business. It's the same principle I apply in my professional world. And I do that by strengthening my relationships all the time. Everything I can do to contribute to the growth of the relationships of the people around me, whether it's my wife or my kids or my family or my friends or my community or anywhere uh, that I'm a part of, it's that first principle. We call it cover and move. We talk about that in business. It really applies everywhere. These personal evolutions that we go through are about strengthening relationships, taking responsibility for the world around you and making yourself better. Because what that does is it sets an example for the people around me and they get better too. And that strengthens the relationships even more, sets them up on a path to be successful. And the connection is absolutely undeniable. And there's really no distinction between the two other than the setting itself. But if you're looking at a leadership book like Extreme Ownership, and if you're looking for the principles that the Echelon Front teaches, the real power in those is in your personal life. It's with your family. It's with the people that you are closest to, the ones that matter the most to you. That's where they're, they're, they're most influential. That's awesome. Uh, so b- before, we, before we wrap up, I, I want to pick your brain on something. So I know you've flown yeah. a few different kinds of planes over your career. Uh, yep. including the, including the F-35, um, F-22, uh, and others, but there's obviously mm-hmm. been an evolution in those planes. And, uh, one of my coworkers is actually a former, uh, naval aviator. And when he goes through the, um, the evolution of those planes, one of the things that he talks about is the data, the feedback you're getting from the plane itself. And that mm-hmm. has obviously evolved immensely, uh, oh, yeah. I- including the F-35. So, But I think that's a great parallel to what's happening in the business world right now. There's, there's endpoints everywhere, data everywhere coming at you. And I think there's a lot of leaders that look at all this information coming in saying, I don't, I don't know what to do with it. How do I process all this and really yeah. make informed decisions? So you've, you've been through that evolution with, with these series of, of, uh, air platforms. What, what tips would you have then for leaders in terms of translating that data and being able to make those decisions sometimes seemingly in real time, um, mm-hmm. when you have all this at, at your fingertips? Yeah, it's such a cool question, man. Uh, and, and those parallels are, are absolutely there. And I, 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 can, I connect them all the time when talking about even the OODA loop. So, you know, I flew these older generation airplanes, uh, the F-18 and the F-16. I got a lot of hours in both of those jets. And it was really great to be able to fly two different airplanes at the time. Flying the F-16 uh, was a huge thrill for me. And, you know, I didn't know at the time that I'd move on to a whole different generation of airplanes and certainly didn't think I'd fly other, you know, multiple airplanes either. But those two airplanes are, are, are very similar, uh, but, you know, they're different in some ways. And so I got to see what it's like to fly different machines. When I transitioned out of the Hornet 
and completed the time flying the Hornet and the Viper, and I flew the F-22, is when I entered kind of the new generation of flying. And the biggest difference between the, the previous generation, the fourth generation, and the current generation, which we call the fifth generation, one of the major differences, and the, there are several, is the amount of information that's being presented to you. Now, what's pretty neat about that, and the F-35 is an, even an evolution over the F-22. So I flew the Raptor for four years. I flew the F-35 for almost three years. And the F-35 is, is a significant step forward, even from the F-22, in terms of the amount of information that's available to you and the potential for that thing to cause that paralysis that I'm sure you've heard uh, yeah. that term before, you know, what, what do I do with this data overload? Well, in one sense, the, the beauty of the fifth generation machines is that they aggregate this data a lot better for you. And so this era of big data, you know, exists even in aviation where there's a ton of data out there. You can pull in so much information, you can easily be overwhelmed by it. But the real goal out there is to aggregate that data and make it relevant and so that data becomes information. And the, the differentiator I have between those two is that one is useful and one is not. Data is not useful. Information is. Now, again, this is very you know rudimentary explanation. There's, I'm sure there's some nuanced explanations out there that people you know could do a better job with. But the bottom line is the data by itself doesn't help you. You've got you to do something with it. When we're talking about the OODA loop, the data, the, the thing that's out there is the observation. It's all the things you see. And the orientation of that is turning it into information turning it into something useful, creating context for that data. And now these airplanes do that extremely well. So that despite the fact that there's an infinitely uh, you know, more data out there, the airplanes are so much better at processing that data that you get much more usable, simpler, easy to use information that's presented to you. So in some ways, the airplanes do a really good job of that, but they don't solve all the problems. So you're still stuck with the second half of the loop, which is to me the most critical part and where we see businesses struggling the most. It used to be back in the day that collecting data was hard. We didn't have these supercomputers and these processors and we didn't have iPhones in the palm of our hand. Now, most people are operating on a pretty level playing field. Most information out there, not all, but most, is readily available to just about anybody. And there's not too much discrete information out there that you can only get that nobody else has access to just because of the world we're living in. So you can't really outperform your peers on the left side of that uh, OODA loop anymore, observe, orient. What you can do is make decisions and take action. And we see where the biggest risk and the biggest hesitation, the biggest failure of people to do it isn't with the information they have. It's with the ownership that comes with making a decision based on information. And even the decision itself by itself isn't enough. We hear people make decisions all the time. It's really the action. It's the taking the step. It's the implementation piece that people are afraid of because they fear the accountability. They fear the failure. They fear the risk. And they fear all the things that go along with owning the decision that you've made. But the ones that do it, the ones that take a step in that direction, even if it's wrong, and they assess what's happening, they get the feedback, they, they have the humility to make a change, they adjust course, and they decide, act, decide, act over and over and over again, while everybody else is stuck on the left side of gathering more and more information. The ones that are willing to take action and, and apply that feedback loop are the ones that are typically the most successful, because that's what's that's the what's lacking the most in what we see in, in companies is the willingness to be aggressive with those actions and take the risk that comes along with that with with that ownership and that's the data, differentiator data is not useful information as i like that uh so hey before we close out i want to give you a chance to uh give the listeners any final thoughts you might have well i think we've done a pretty good job covering most of what's on my mind you know i think the biggest thing out there is this idea of leadership leadership is a human endeavor that that book you talked about is just is, is a really cool way to assess yourself but the reality is, is that 
everybody out there can get better. We have a ton more control over our lives and over our environment than we think. And this is a crazy world we're living in right now. There's a lot going on. And sometimes you can feel resigned to the fact that you are um, not in control of what's happening. You know, COVID-19 and some other things. Well, no, you may not be in control of COVID-19, but you are indeed and most certainly in control of how you react to that and how you respond to that. And that idea we talked about earlier about taking ownership of everything you can control in your world. And if you can take ownership of that, even things that people, other people see you can't, that gives you power. It gives you control. It gives you the ability to do the things we just talked about today, which is make decisions and see the impacts of those decisions and take that feedback on board and get better and improve. And even under the most difficult situations, even when you don't know what to do, you can still look around, identify something you can take control over and take control of that. And the world that we live in is a challenging, difficult place sometimes, but we as individual human beings have a ton more control than we give ourselves credit for. Be hard on yourself, uh, hold yourself to a very high standard and every single day stay on the path to getting better and over time, that discipline will pay off and eventually give you the freedom that you all want. Uh, and that's the path that I'm on. And I think that's the path that we can all get on. And, and that's something that, that gives us control over our lives, which is something most of us want. The passion and excitement that you have definitely comes through for what you do. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us to talk about it today. Yeah, man. It was really cool to be on. Thanks so much for having me. The book we talked about, The Code, The Evaluation, The Protocols by Jocko Willink. Dave Burke and Sarah Armstrong is available now. And this has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at ChittisterAB. Thanks again for listening, guys. Bye for now.